So this morning we're continuing through Isaiah. Um, We're not doing all of Isaiah, for those of you who are visiting. We're taking just a few chapters here and there to give us a sense of the book. We'll probably be doing it up until about Christmas, uh, maybe beyond Christmas. In fact, this morning is actually a little bit of a Christmas uh, text. I see Pick and Pay has already put out their decorations, so I thought I'd get in on the act as well. And we're actually going to look at Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, and Isaiah 9 this morning, which seemed like a good idea at the time. It's going to probably require a little bit of work from us this morning, but it's, it's well worth it because these chapters belong together and have a, a very important message for us. So if you've got a Bible with you, you might like to turn to Isaiah 7, and uh, we'll put some of the words up on the screen as well. So in moving from Isaiah chapter 6 to chapter 7, we're actually moving forward in history about 16 years. Uh, In chapter 6, we read about the death of King Uzziah of Judah. Uh, After Uzziah, Uzziah's son Jotham reigned for about 16 years. And after Jotham came his son Ahaz, whom we meet in this chapter. The title for this series is Trust in Troubled Times. And here again in Isaiah 7, uh, Judah as a nation are experiencing real troubled times. Uh, This was during the time of what we call the Syro-Ephraimite War. Syro-Ephraimite War, rather. Uh, These weren't two nations that were at war with one another. Rather, they were two nations, Ephraim, uh, better known as the northern kingdom of Israel, and Syria, who were at war with the southern kingdom of Judah. And the reason that they were at war with Judah was because of something that was taking place on the international scale. Uh, A few weeks back, we saw how in 745, Tiglath-Pileser III had taken the throne of Assyria, and his uh, modest ambition was to try and take over the world. Uh, He expanded his kingdom north and west, and then you can see on the map that he wanted to head south and take over some of the nations there, particularly the nation of Egypt. And obviously, in order to get to Egypt, he had to go through Syria, Israel, and Judah. Now, these nations weren't going to take this lying down. They decided to rebel against Assyria. And uh, Syria and Israel, in particular, decided to fight. And they said to Judah, well, come with us and fight against the Assyrians. Uh, But Judah didn't want to. And so Syria and Israel decided to attack the nation of Judah and try and force them and get all of their resources so that they could attack the Assyrians. And you can go away and read this section of history in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, which tells us about the war that took place. Uh, We read that in one day, Pekah, king of Israel, and his army killed 120,000 Judean soldiers. And Pekah and Rezin, the king of Syria, took over some of the northern parts of the land. And now in this chapter, they're headed to Jerusalem. In fact, they're camped outside. And let's pick up then the story in Isaiah 7, verses 1 to 9. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. 
Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramadia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So at the beginning of chapter 7, we find Ahaz, um, and he's at one of the main sources of water for the city of Jerusalem. Interesting, it was near the washerman's field, which says something about uh, gender roles in the Old Testament. Uh, This was before the building of Hezekiah's famous tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel brought water from outside of the city into the city. Uh, That didn't happen at this point. They've just got this pool of water, and there is this siege taking place. And uh, Ahaz knows uh, that they're going to run out of water within the next one or two weeks. And Ahaz is stood there and he's looking forlornly at this sort of puddle of water, wondering what is going to happen. And Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he says, in effect, don't worry, trust God. That's quite a statement to make when you've got the armies of two foreign nations camped right outside the city wall, where they've already defeated you in battle. Isaiah says, don't worry, trust God. The the situation would have been similar to what took place in World War II. Uh, After the evacuation of Dunkirk, you had the German army covering most of Europe, moving into North Africa. There was only 34 kilometers of sea separating Hitler's armies from this tiny island of Great Britain. And it would have been in a similar set of circumstances then that Ahaz and the people of Judah find themselves. And it's into that situation that God speaks and says, don't be afraid. Now, the the issue here for Ahaz and for Judah and for all of us when we find ourselves in difficulties is one of perspective. It's one of reality or our vision of reality. When we find ourselves in times of difficulty, our perspective is very important. Does the future lie in the power of politics and clever political maneuvering? Does the future lie in the power of these armies, or does the future lie with God, the Holy One of Israel? One Bible commentator puts it this way, In every circumstance, there are two perspectives. There's the human and the divine. And as here, the two are frequently in conflict. From Ahaz's point of view, Syria and Ephraim constitute a major threat. But from God's point of view, they are negligible and need not occupy the king's time. It's not always easy to gain the divine perspective 
Yet, unless we seek it, we're always in danger of paying too much attention to the passing and paying too little attention to the significant. Isn't that true of our, of our own lives? How much time do we spend reading News 24 and worrying? And how much time do we read our Bibles and th- see things from God's perspective? God looks at these nations and he sees them as tiny and negligible. Well, in the face of possible unbelief, Isaiah gives Ahaz another message from God. If you read on a little bit in verses 10 and 11, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Often in the Old Testament, you have people asking God for a sign. I think of Gideon and his famous fleece. But here, God himself uh, asks Ahaz, well, ask me for a sign and I'll give it to you. But Ahaz says in verse 12, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Which sounds incredibly spiritual and you know, noble of him. Uh, It's even biblical. Deuteronomy 16 says, do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. But actually, Ahaz's so-called piety is just a handful of fluff. The reason Ahaz doesn't want to ask God for a sign is because actually he's already made up his mind what he's going to do. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 16, the Bible tells us what Ahaz did in this situation. It's worth looking at. We read that Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace, and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. Ahaz decides to ask Assyria for help. He'd already decided in his mind what he was going to do, and yet he stands there and says, I will not put the Lord to the test. I think there's a a real warning for us here, because in, in our day, we sometimes say, I'll pray about it, but how many times haven't we perhaps already made up our mind about what we're going to do. And there's a a real danger in the hypocrisy of pretending to be seeking after God and His will when actually we've already made up our mind of what we're going to do. Ahaz asks Assyria for help, which is insanity and actually completely unnecessary because Assyria is going to come and beat up Israel and Syria anyway. I mean, uh, Tiglath-Pileser didn't need anyone to give him money to do that. That's what he was planning to do. But he's more than welcome to accept Ahaz's money to do what he was going to do, uh, if that will please Ahaz. Ahaz's actions are complete folly. But that's what happens when we reject God. One writer puts it this way. Once we abandon a heartfelt conviction that God does truly care for us and is intimately involved with us, once we abandon his perspective for our own, then suddenly decisions which are utterly foolish viewed from God's perspective become intelligent and wise to us. When we cannot trust God, it suddenly makes good sense to trust our worst enemy. 
And so John Wesley once said, if a man will not believe God, he will believe anything. Well, Isaiah isn't very happy about this, and neither is God. And so God himself gives Ahaz a sign. It's a very famous sign, which we know from the New Testament, verses 13 to 16. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. A virgin will conceive. Now, this might get a bit technical, but it's important for us. You'll you'll see, maybe if you've got an NIV Bible there, the footnote tells us, that the word Isaiah uses for virgin is the Hebrew word alma, which can mean young woman, or in our terms, maiden. It's a word that speaks about a young woman of marriageable age. Uh, It can include the idea of virginity, but not limited to virginity. Uh, If Isaiah really wanted to tell us that this was a virgin virgin, he would have used the word betula, which unambiguously refers to a virgin. It's the main Hebrew word for virgin. Some people say, no, this word must mean virgin because otherwise it negates the virgin birth of Jesus. We'll get to that in a moment. But just to say, we don't get the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus from Isaiah. We get it from the New Testament. Matthew and Luke tell us that Mary was a virgin. Why is all of this important? Well, I think Isaiah's use of words here is important because it's got this dual meaning. And the dual meaning is important because here in Isaiah 7, the reference is not just to one child, but rather to two children. We'll look at the first child now, and a little bit later on, we'll look at who the second child refers, or who the reference is to the second child. So the first child uh, was one that was born during Ahaz's time. That makes sense, doesn't it? If this was a sign for Ahaz, then it must have taken place in Ahaz's time, or else it wouldn't have been a sign to Ahaz. Isaiah says that this child is going to be born, and before the child knows right from wrong, the two nations, Syria and Israel, will be completely defeated. Now, there are all sorts of opinions as to who this child was, but to me, the simplest explanation is to view the child as Isaiah's own child. So if you flip over to chapter 8 and verse 1, we read this. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jerobekiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maha Shalal Hashbaz. Before the the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So you see, it's the same words, it's the same set of circumstances, it's the same sign of Emmanuel in chapter 7. This is Isaiah's child. It, It might be that this is also Isaiah's second wife, 
Um, Chapter 8 seems to be referring to a marriage ceremony, in which case this really would be a virgin. But whether she was a virgin or not, the first reference seems to be to Isaiah's own child, Maha Shalal Hashbaz, if you're looking for boy names anytime soon. (laughs) And this child will be a sign to Ahaz and to Judah. And sadly, he's a double-edged sign. On the one hand, he's a sign of hope. Hope that these nations are going to be destroyed, which did in fact happen. Isaiah spoke this prophecy in 734 BC. Assyria defeated Syria in 732 BC and invaded the land of Israel in 722 BC. So before Maharshal al-Hashbaz could say, Mama, Dada, both Pekah and Rezin were dead. But on the other hand, this child will be a sign of woe because Ahaz and the nation have rejected God because they've in fact sought the help of Assyria. Assyria will turn on them. Assyria will come and devastate the land. And that's what we read on in chapter 8 from verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will flow, overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Again, repeating the thought that's there in chapter 7. Ahaz had trusted Assyria, but Assyria will turn on him. As one writer points out, whatever a person trusts in, in place of God, will one day turn to destroy him. Don't you find that often in life? The things that we trust in instead of God turn on us. The things that we uh, you know, put all of our time and energy in, suddenly become traps to us, and we find ourselves destroyed by the very thing that we relied on. But even in the midst of this devastation, God will be with his people. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Design your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Remember the word Emmanuel means God is with us. God will be with his people, even though Assyria will come and destroy them. And God will be with his people, even when a much greater power than Assyria comes along to devastate the land. Isaiah looks beyond Assyria, who will come and fight against them, and he looks to the time of the Babylonians, who will come and they'll cart the people off into exile in Babylon. That'll take place a hundred years later. But even then, God will still be with his people. And that's what we come to now in the rest of chapter 8. Let's read the rest of the chapter. It's a little bit long. Uh, But it's important for us because now we move to the practical side of what to do in troubled times and see if you can pick up on some of this as we go along. So verse 11 of chapter 8. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. 
Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread and he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When people tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam throughout the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as people rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. There's a lot that we could look at in these verses, but one of the things these verses do is they give us some very practical things to do when we find ourselves in trouble. What, what do you do when the armies of two foreign countries are camped right outside your gates and you've only got water left for two weeks? What do we do when we live in a country where if you're a woman, it's not even safe to go to the post office on your own anymore? What do you do when you live in a country that seems to be tearing itself apart all over again with racism and tribalism and violence? What do you do when you look around and think, where can I go? What can I do? And you realize, well, actually, there's nowhere on earth that's pretty safe and uh, sane in this time. We live in very troubled times. And added to that this morning might be the anxiety of personal circumstances. Uh, there may be illness or loss or broken relationships 
broken marriages, unfaithfulness, rejection, abuse. What do we do in those times? Well, according to the verses that we've just read, in troubled times, we should be fearful, wait, give up, and read a book. I know you don't believe me, but let's, let's have a look. <laughs> Firstly, in, in troubled times, we should be fearful. And you say, hold on a moment, that's not in this passage. Doesn't the Bible tell us again and again, do not be afraid? In fact, someone has calculated that the words fear not or do not be afraid are actually used 366 times in the Bible, once for every day of the, of the year and one for leap years. I haven't actually counted myself, but that's a theory that's going around. Trusting God doesn't mean that we are without fear altogether. It means that our fear lies in a different direction. Remember verse 12 and verse 13. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Not not in that abject fearfulness, but counting his name as holy. The Apostle Peter picks up these very words in 1 Peter chapter 3. He's speaking in the context of Christian suffering, where people were being put to death for their faith in Christ. And he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Fearing God means setting Christ apart as Lord, that he is our first reference point in any and every situation. Our relationship with him is different from any other relationship we might have. And if we fear God, we don't have to fear anything else. If we kneel before God, we can stand before anything. Secondly, we're to wait, verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Judah. I will put my trust in him. And and waiting and trusting go together. If I'm busy plotting and planning and figuring things out, how I should act in this situation, then often I'm not trusting God. (laughs) But if I'm waiting on him in prayer, seeking his face, seeking his perspective, then I'm trusting him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 27, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. I've got a lovely little pillow at home. Somebody gave us a pillow with those words embroidered on them. And when we first received uh, that pillow as a couple, we were in a very difficult situation. And we had those words, wait for the Lord. It's so interesting that pillow uh, lasted and lasted, and it's now quite frayed, and the words are quite frayed. But in the end, God did come through for us in that situation. And every time I see that frayed pillow, I'm reminded, well, sometimes waiting takes a while, and sometimes things will sort of unravel a little bit, but, but God can be trusted when we wait on him. Thirdly, in times of trouble, we are to give up, as in give up our own plans and wisdom. If you look at verse 19, When people tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? As I was speaking about going to uh, false prophets, um, mediums, spiritists, um, 
Not too many of us, I hope, are going to go out visiting fortune tellers this week or reading our horoscopes. And so we might think, well, we're beyond all of this. But have you ever heard of a financial wizard? Um, <laughs> we, we still have those whose advice we seek. We look for the financial wizards and the economic wizards. We follow certain news columnists and think, well, this guy's got the truth as to the political situation in our country. But as we saw at the beginning of this sermon, it's God's perspective that we need to keep on seeking. We need to consult God. As one writer puts it, it is sheer foolishness when God has made his way, which is also our way, clear, to resort then to some other means to find a path out of darkness. Such other means can only make the darkness and our anguish more intense, for they lead away from him who is light. And fourthly, in troubled times, we're to go and read a book. Look at the contrast in verses 19 and 20. These, these are wonderfully stirring words. When people tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. And so instead of relying on our own intelligence and our own wisdom, we should be seeking God's will through his word, checking our ways and the advice of others against God's word. But there is one final thing we're to do during troubled times, and that is that we are to look to the sun. Chapter 8 ends in complete darkness. It's the darkness of those who've rejected God and trusted others instead of trusting God. Him. Isaiah uses three words for darkness in verse 22. He says, they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. But God is never content to leave us to our own devices. His judgment is not an end in itself, Rather, it's a means to an end. He wants us to realize the darkness we are in and to turn to the light. It's a little bit like a, a little girl who says she's running away from home and the father watches as she storms out of the house. He watches her get to the end of the road and then he sees her stop and burst into tears. No earthly father would delight in his child's pain, but he would delight in that the pain has brought her to her senses and will bring her back home. And so in chapter 9, the same darkness that is spoken about in chapter 8 is pierced by the light of God. God brings His light, not because we deserve it, not because we've somehow managed to find a key that will force Him, not because we're even seeking Him, but simply due to His grace and to His grace alone. And part of that grace is bringing light into the very part of the country which first experienced His judgment, so chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And this light will come through a little child. And it's very clear now that Isaiah has moved way beyond his own child, way beyond any earthly child at all, in fact, 
Look at the description of this child from verse 6 and 7 again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. We don't have time to look at all of these characteristics in detail. Just, just notice a couple of things. He will be called wonderful. As one commentator puts it, there'll be nothing dull about his reign. Uh, counselor, someone who has wisdom. Uh, mighty God. These words are only ever used of God himself in the Old Testament. Everlasting Father. Again, speaking about God. A Prince of Peace. And while this person is divine, yet at the same time, Isaiah tells us that he's a child. In other words, he comes to earth in the most human way possible, through birth. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what Matthew picks up on in his gospel. Uh, speaking of Jesus, having told us about Joseph and Mary and Mary being a virgin, he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We mustn't let the, our familiarity with the Christmas story uh, numb us to the power of these chapters. Here you have a prophecy 700 years before the coming of Jesus, speaking of the fact that he will be God, and speaking about the fact that he will be fully man too, being born of a virgin. And I guess the question for us this morning is then, will we trust this child? Because in fact, there's a warning for us back in chapter 8 and verses 14 and 15. Isaiah says, he will be a sanctuary, but for both houses of Israel, he'll be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They'll fall and be broken. They'll be snared and captured. Again and again, the New Testament takes these words and applies them to Jesus. You see, our attitude towards Jesus determines how we experience him. He doesn't change. It's our attitude towards him that determines how we experience him. You know, if we place him at the center of our lives, if we accept him as God's self-sufficient sacrifice for us, then this rock becomes a sanctuary a place of refuge, a place of peace. But if we don't make place for Jesus in our lives, then he becomes a stone that we're continually colliding with and tripping over, not because there's any vindictiveness in him, but simply because he is there and we're trying to live our lives as if he were not. So in these troubled times in which we find ourselves, will, will we do some of the things that we're told on here? Are we going to put our trust in God, give up on our own ideas, wait on him, and look to his son?